Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We start today with a deathbed scene. The man on his deathbed is named Robert Greene, and the year is 1592. Robert Greene is a wealthy man, very well educated. He's a playwright. He's a poet. And while on his deathbed, he writes a pamphlet. The pamphlet is entitled A Groat's Worth of Wit. In his pamphlet, he ridicules all sorts of writers, but he singles out one, a young writer from London, that he really seems to despise. And his hatred for this young writer um, seems to be lodged in jealousy. So in this pamphlet, Robert Greene, who's basically forgotten to history except for this pamphlet, ridicules this young writer from London, calling him an upstart crow. He ridicules him as being uneducated. He has no significant parentage, unlike, you know, Green. Green was university educated, came from good parentage. He ran with a dramatist crowd. But this young writer seems to have none of that. And in this pamphlet, Green closes by saying that this young writer has a tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide the only shake scene in a country. Who was the young writer? Well, we can surmise a few things. He was successful enough that Green could kind of like mock him and have everybody else know who he was. He can refer to him by this abbreviated name, shake scene. In the pamphlet, Green quotes some lines from this young writer's plays, um, one of the Henry VI plays. So what can we surmise about this? That there was a young writer in London in 1592 who had made his mark. And thanks to this deathbed pamphlet by Robert Green, 
we first hear historically about the playwright William Shakespeare. Today, on The Plays the Thing, a special episode, A Life of William Shakespeare. Who was William Shakespeare? And what did he believe? That's what this is about. If you've tuned in, you obviously must be some sort of fan of Shakespeare. Perhaps you're a teacher who teaches Shakespeare to kids. Maybe you're a parent who just wants their kids to be acquainted. Or maybe you just love William Shakespeare for his work. He is, without a doubt, the English language playwright he might be the English language poet. In fact, a lot of people think that Shakespeare believed that if he was ever going to be famous, it was not going to be as a playwright, it was going to be as a poet. We remember, remember him best probably as a playwright. Saying anything about William Shakespeare is difficult. His life is almost famously mysterious. There are all sorts of legends about him, But really, when it comes down to it, we know very, very little about him. If you want to kind of get like a quick overview of just how much speculation there is about the life of William Shakespeare, the book for you is probably a little Shakespeare biography by Bill Bryson. I'm actually going to quote from it a few times. It's a wonderful short book. And Bill Bryson makes it really clear the whole, there have been millions and millions of pages, that is not an exaggeration, printed about William Shakespeare. And a lot of it, frankly, is really speculative. In this podcast, I am going to try my best to just kind of stick with the things that people, scholars feel most confident about. And I'm also going to just give like a little stone skip across the ocean of William Shakespeare's work. So we're just going to kind of dip into some of the big, most well-known, most cherished plays. And we might just touch just a little bit on his sonnets also. But the main thing that I want to do is kind of give a life of William Shakespeare and to insert within that life just reflections, brief reflections on his plays. So we start in 1592 because that's when we know that Shakespeare is in London. We don't know much about his life before that. In fact, there's a gap in the historical record from 1585 to 1592. We know in 1585 he is in Stratford-on-Avon, where he was born, where he was raised, and where he got his education. Nobody knows why he left Stratford-upon-Avon. Nobody knows why he went to London. London's about 101 miles away from Stratford-upon-Avon. But we are pretty confident about this. When he left, he was leaving a family behind. So we know this because there's an Episcopal register in Worcester that details a marriage, and the marriage is between Willemum Shakespeare... And people think that's William Shakespeare. In 1582, he was 18 years old at the time. 
His bride's name was Anne Hathaway. She was 26, eight years older. One other thing that we know, the marriage was arranged quite hastily. And six months after the marriage, do the math here, Susanna Shakespeare was christened. So, it sure appears that the marriage was a bit of a forced marriage because Anne Hathaway was pregnant with William Shakespeare's child. Two years later, two more children were born. Those were twins, born in 1585. They were named Judith and Hamnet. Then, after the birth of the twins, the historical record goes vacant until 1592. It's not until Robert Greene's complaint about the upstart crow, William Shakespeare, that we know that Shakespeare's moved to London. Here's something else we know. Between 1592 and 1613, William Shakespeare goes from being a nobody, a kind of country bumpkin from Stratford-upon-Avon, an upstart crow, to the playwright in London. His plays are performed before the queen, later before the king, and eventually he will become the playwright of the English language and perhaps the poet playwright, perhaps of all time. What was his boyhood like? We don't really know. Uh, But what I really like is a bit of a conjecture by the biographer Stephen Greenblatt. Stephen Greenblatt's book called Will in the World is one of the biographies that I really want to recommend to you if you want to get to know Shakespeare better. He is um, great with what we know about history, but what I really like about Stephen Greenblatt is he likes to speculate, and he kind of imaginatively takes us into Shakespeare's mind based on the things that we do know and based on the plays that we have. And when he speculates, he has kind of a novelist touch when it comes to creating a narrative, especially of Shakespeare's inner life. So this is what Stephen Greenblatt says in his biography, Will in the World, about what William Shakespeare presumably was like as a child. Let us imagine that Shakespeare found himself from boyhood fascinated by language, obsessed with the magic of words. There is overwhelming evidence for this obsession from his earliest writings. So it's a very safe assumption that that began early on, perhaps from his very first moment that his mother whispered a nursery rhyme in his ear. Pillicock, Pillicock sat on a hill. If he's not gone, he sits there still. This was a love and a pleasure that Elizabethan England could arouse, richly satisfy, and reward, for that culture prized ornate eloquence and cultivated a taste for lavish prose from preachers and politicians and expected even people of modest accomplishments and sober sensibilities to write poems. So Shakespeare is born into a world that prizes language, not just from leaders, not just from people who are kind of like at the top of the economic social chain, 
but everybody. And you can see this in Shakespeare's works. You can see like even his kind of um, lowborn characters, you know, his kind of destitute characters. Oh, they pride themselves on being able to turn a phrase or to kind of joust verbally. And the characters that he seems to mock the most, regardless of whether or not they're wealthy or poor, are those people who just have no wit. Nothing is worse almost for Shakespeare as someone who has no wit. It's, it's just evidence that this person is just not really serious about life. They don't deserve to like land that beautiful woman. They don't deserve to be paid in gold. They just don't deserve it. They don't have wit. There has been a lot written about Shakespeare's education. How can this kind of primordial genius with words, what kind of education did he have? The book that I'm going to recommend to you is by Miriam Joseph. And the title is Shakespeare's Use of the Arts of Language. After you're done reading Miriam Joseph's book, you'll see that his training in Latin really set him up to succeed. Um, and it really opened the doors for him to be incredibly creative with the English language. Of course, we all know thousands of words and all sorts of phrases that have made themselves into kind of contemporary, um, our contemporary lexicon all originated with Shakespeare. And one of the ways that it happened, one of the ways that he was able to kind of invent so many words is that he had a real, um, his training, his education training really emphasized using prefixes and suffixes and kind of attaching them to words so that you create brand new words. Shakespeare did this all the time. One other thing we know about the boy Shakespeare based on historical records is that he probably got what we would call today a classical education. And that's important to mention because this podcast is hosted by the Circe Institute, an organization that is all about furthering or maybe even like reawakening a classical approach to education. If you do want to know more about that, go to circeinstitute.org. Circe spelled C-I-R-C-E, circeinstitute.org. Um, so we know that the classical approach to education, which is kind of really developed during the medieval world, Shakespeare inherited that. The thing, of course, that we remember about Shakespeare is his characters, his incredible psychological insight. He knew what made men and women go. He knew what motivated them. But more than anything else, it's the words. They're so beautiful. For me, all I have to do is like remember this one line from Henry V. It's a, it's a throwaway line. It's buried in a soliloquy by kind of a minor character named Cambridge. It's, it's no one ever mentions it, but I remember reading it and just being struck that Shakespeare was so overflowing with eloquence and linguistic precision that he didn't even highlight a sentence that I would give a finger to have been able to write. Cambridge says, 
in this extended metaphor about bees, he compares bees to the singing masons building roofs of gold. The singing masons building roofs of gold. Shakespeare makes his way, for reasons that are mysterious to us, to London, and he is there in 1592. I want to dwell for a little bit on the London that he arrived in, and this is going to be from Bill Bryson's little biography of, of Shakespeare. Here's Bryson. Few places in history have been more deadly and desirable at the same time than London in the 16th century. Conditions that made life challenging elsewhere were particularly rife in London, where newly arrived sailors and other travelers continually refreshed the city's stock of infectious maladies. Public performance of all types, in fact, all public gatherings except for church going, were also banned within seven miles of London each time the death toll in the city reached 40, and that happened a great deal. Um, it's easy to think of London at this time as being kind of like a neat, you know, kind of well-scrubbed urban area. And I think the reason, at least for me, that it's easy to feel that way is because Shakespeare seems so contemporary. Yes, the language is old, but his kind of like psychological insights make him seem like a very modern man. In fact, there's a famous critic, um, I'll think of his name in a second, whose book on Shakespeare, Cott, I think is the last name, is Shakespeare, Our Contemporary. And the book really details that Shakespeare was, in so many ways, ahead of his time. But let's not get mistaken that London was somehow like a contemporary city. It was not. This was the Renaissance, but the Renaissance is really late medieval. It's the late medieval world. So um, let's listen again to Bryson describe what we would have experienced in London in 1592. Among the other differences we would notice between then and now was much to do with the dining and diet. The main meal was taken at midday and, among the better off, often featured foods that are uneaten now. Crane, bustard, swan, and stork. For poorer people, not surprisingly, diet was much simpler and more monotonous, considering, uh, consisting mainly of dark bread and cheese with little occasional meat. Vegetables were eaten mostly by those who could not afford anything better. The potato was an exotic newcomer, still treated skeptically by many because its leaves looked similar to those of the poisonous nightshade. Potatoes wouldn't become a popular food until the 18th century. Tea and coffee were yet unknown. People of all classes loved their foods sweet. Many dishes were coated with a sticky sweet glaze. Even wine was sometimes given a generous charge of sugar as were fish, eggs, and meats of every type. Such was the popularity of sugar that people's teeth often turned black, 
And those who failed to attain the condition naturally sometimes blackened their teeth artificially to show that they had their share of sugar. Rich women, including the queen, made themselves additionally beauteous by bleaching their skin with compounds of borax, sulfur, and lead, all at least mildly toxic, sometimes very much more so, for pale skin was a sign of supreme loveliness. That's from page 54 and 55 of Bill Bryson's Shakespeare. His first play, it's widely agreed upon, was Two Gentlemen of Verona. Now, the dating of the play is a little bit tougher. Somewhere in, this, in a six-year period between 1589 and 1595, you hear 1589, you're like, wait, he wasn't in London yet. Okay, so some people think that maybe he had written this play before arriving in London. So it's a hard play to pin down as far as an exact date. Most of Shakespeare's plays are a little bit hard to be really, really precise about. We can usually get it within a one or two year period, but Two Gentlemen of Verona, it's a little tougher. Uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona is a comedy. It is not a great play, but... Even in that play, you can start to see some of Shakespeare's favorite themes and tropes show up. Love at first sight is a huge one. I can't remember. I'm sure it happens. Uh, Any couple that gets together in a Shakespeare play that fall in love slowly, maybe Beatrice and Benedict, but they hate each other for a while. Maybe um, the couple in Taming of the Shrew, Petruchio and Kate, they also hate each other. So it's kind of like when potential lovers meet, it's either cold water or it is hot water. It's, and it's immediate. It's immediate. Shakespeare loves this. He loves this. Love at first sight or even hate at first sight. There are also in Two Gentlemen of Verona lots of quibbles. And quibbles, I mean that in a kind of a technical way. Like, um a back-and-forth repartee of wit, verbal arm wrestling. Speakers are trying to squeeze as many different meanings out of a word as possible. He loves this, and he does it a lot in Two Gentlemen of Verona. One of the quibbles is between a character named Proteus and a character named Speed, and they get in this long, it's almost this interminably long, like, quibble and they're playing on sheep. It sounds like ship. A sheep cannot be a shepherd. And Speed has this line, the shepherd seeks the sheep and not the sheep, the shepherd. But I seek my master and my master seeks not me. Therefore, I am no sheep. And it's funny. It's funny. And as Shakespeare's work matures, he gets more thrifty with this because this little quibble goes on for like lines and lines and lines. And it's, and it's, it's great at the beginning. And then you're like, is this for us or is this more for our playwright? And at that point, it's probably more for our playwright. Uh, another trope that shows up in the play is just the foolish behavior of people in love. They seem to just lose all sorts of rational faculties the moment they fall in love. He also introduces his first heroine that dresses as a boy This is going to show up in all sorts of comedies, Twelfth Night and others. 
And of course, the conflict between friendship and love. All of these themes, all of these tropes show up in Gentlemen of Verona. But I like to think of Shakespeare's kind of his breakthrough hit on the London stage. His, the real moment that he arrived is, it's not unlike a lot of great Hollywood directors or writers. Their first hit is a horror film. Shakespeare's first hit was a horror film. The eldest son of this distressed queen. Titus Andronicus is the play. It's 1591, 1594, somewhere in that three years. And it includes a scene of, I mean, like, hold your kids' ears. It includes a scene of Tamara, queen of the Goths, unwittingly eating a meat pie. And in the meat pie are the remains of her two sons who have been butchered by Titus Andronicus. That's Shakespeare's first play. So, I mean, whenever I think about, you know, people, Shakespeare now has this kind of like reputation that he belongs to the academics and he's, um, you know, terribly obscure and, and he belongs in an ivory tower. No, 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 no. The language, of course, um, sounds to us today like academic language. But Shakespeare is writing for large crowds and he's not afraid of appealing to them. He is not afraid of writing a horror film, a horror play. You follow what I'm saying? So Shakespeare, by this time, the mid-1590s, we see evidence that he is writing hits, that he's becoming known in the London theater season. Around the same time, he is writing sonnets in all, I think he wrote 154 sonnets. And as I mentioned earlier, he thinks this is where he's really going to like establish himself. Poetry was so heralded. Playwriting and play performing was kind of on the fringes of society a little bit. Um, so he thinks, if I'm going to make a name, it's going to be as a poet. And this might be his best known poet from Sonnet 18. This is David Tennant. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. 
So from 1591 to 1597, he is working on sonnets. These sonnets will be published before the end of his life. Meanwhile, he is writing more and more celebrated plays, more and more serious plays. 1592, he writes the play Richard III. So picture the scene. The beginning of the play, the very, very first scene, one man walks out onto the stage to address us. He's club-footed. He's hunchbacked. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings. That was Richard III. Bad guy. Bad guy, right? Was he actually club-footed? Maybe not. Was he hunchbacked? Actually, he was actually a hunch, hunchback. Um, someone dug up Richard III's bones, and they found that he did have kind of a curve in his spine, but not like the sort of curve or the kind of hunchback that Shakespeare play gives him. I mean, Shakespeare really exaggerates Richard III's deformities. In fact, listen to this second clip from that same monologue. Richard III is going to talk about just, just how ugly he is. I that I'm curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. So the play Richard III tells about Richard's kind of Machiavellian rise to power and the very short reign of Richard III in England. Richard III, of course, was a real character. And so right now, let's talk about how Shakespeare used history, because a lot of his, I'm not going to say a lot of his plays, almost all of his plays, he stole plots. I think there are only two plays. One of them is Midsummer Night's Dream. I'll think of the other one before the end of the podcast. Only two plays did he just develop the plots, it seems like, from scratch. Almost all of the other plots are taken from real history or existing, let's call it, legend. So Richard III comes from, of course, real history. Richard III was of the Plantagenet House of York. So Shakespeare lived later under the Tudor monarchs, the enemies of the Plantagenet house. So, of course, Shakespeare was reading historians who were Tudor historians. They influenced him. And his favorite uh, historian, it looks like, is a, a writer named Hollinshed. Uh, Shakespeare refers all that he doesn't refer to. He pulls historical facts from Hollinshed's chronicles. Hollinshed's Chronicles it was published around the time of Shakespeare's birth. So this would have been kind of a um, kind of a popular historian. 
and Shakespeare just loves him over and over. He takes um, characters, plot lines from this these real histories covered in Holinshed's chronicles. So Shakespeare is um, living in the time of the Tudor monarchs, and it would be very important for a playwright who is performing under a Tudor monarch to represent Richard III, the last Plantagenet king, as a villain. And so this story is kind of, Richard III is the story of evil being conquered by good. Another um, historical book that Shakespeare pulled a lot from was Plutarch, Plutarch's Parallel Lives. So Plutarch was, if I'm not mistaken, he was a Greek historian that lived during the Roman Empire. And he wrote these, what they're called parallel lives. He would write little mini biographies of famous Greeks and famous Romans. And he would find two characters, let's say um, Julius Caesar from Rome and Alexander the Great from Greece, Macedonia, but from the, the Greek period. And he would put them side by side and he would say, let's look at the similarities and let's look at the differences. Shakespeare loved to pull from Plutarch's parallel lives. Now, was Shakespeare accurate to those histories? Well, big picture, yes, but he was definitely not afraid to change kind of like the smaller, um, more detailed aspects of his historical subject to suit his purposes. So um, a quote, and this is from another little biography that I'm going to refer to a few times. Nori Epstein wrote a book called The Friendly Shakespeare. If you want to just kind of read a kind of gossipy uh, overview of Shakespeare's plays and who he was and all the theories and legends around Shakespeare, I love Nori Epstein's The Friendly Shakespeare. It's broken up into little short chapters he talks all about production history. It's really gossipy and it's wonderful. And this is taken from that book. So, quote from Nori Epstein, uh, The Friendly Shakespeare. Quote, while Shakespeare rarely altered basic historic facts, he didn't feel slavishly bound to them. Facts are subservient to the story. For example, he would condense time so that 10 years could be telescoped down into a day or a week. Another example is Hotspur in, I'm now not quoting uh, Epstein anymore, but Hotspur, the antagonist to Prince Hal in Henry IV Part One. Hotspur was actually considerably older than was Prince Hal. But Shakespeare is like, you know what? It would suit my play better if Hotspur and Hal were basically the same age because this story that I'm telling, Henry IV, Part One, is the story of their rivalry. The rivalry, the clash between the two of them, it will really be, it'll be even more fiery if they're the same age. So, Shakespeare, no problem. I'm going to make Hotspur the same age as Prince Hal. Okay. Now, Shakespeare is continuing to write poetry because around this time, around the time that Richard III is being performed, 
there is an outbreak of Black Plague. This would happen all the time in London. And like COVID, everything would just kind of shut down. So public spaces would shut down in London during the Black Plague. They would kind of wait it out for six months, for 12 months, and then they would open back up again. And so during this time, around 1592, 1593, the plague hits London really hard. Shakespeare retreats and he works again on his poetry. Venus and Adonis is published or written in 1593. It's a long narrative poem. Sometime 1593, 1594, The Rape of Lucretia is written. Also writes a couple more plays, including Love's Labor's Lost. Now, a moment is about to occur. And the moment occurs 1594, 1595. Shakespeare has already had hit plays, but now we're about to step into another level. He writes his first absolute masterpiece, not only one of his greatest plays, but surely one of the world's greatest plays. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Romeo and Juliet. It's the story of two young people. They're called in the very beginning of the play, star-crossed lovers. They are from warring families, and they like so many of Shakespeare's great romantic characters, they see each other, and the moment they see each other, they fall in love madly. They fall in love at a party. What's interesting about the party, it's being thrown by Juliet's father, and Romeo, who's of course like absolutely like anathema, should never be at this party, but it's a it's a disguise, you know, he disguises himself. He's wearing a mask. He goes in, he sees Juliet and he falls madly in love. He probably would have been killed or at least beaten had they known, had Juliet's family known that he was in the house. Oh, the play is so wonderful. I, I watched it recently um, and I watched the 90s version starring, oh gosh, I'm forgetting their names, beautiful young actors and this very contemporized, um, kind of um, quick-paced version of Romeo and Juliet. That was one of the first plays of Shakespeare that I saw receive a really high-quality movie performance. Another was Hamlet. Another was Othello. I think those three movies, which all came out, if I'm not mistaken, in the 90s, really started to wake me up to how unbelievably exciting Shakespeare was. The other thing for me, I'm, I'm going on a little discursus here. The, other, the thing that really changed Shakespeare for me was I had to perform Shakespeare for the first time. I, I mean, I was probably late thirties, maybe even 40 when I was asked to perform a scene from measure for measure. I played Claudio, Claudio, um, is sentenced to death. And when he realizes that he's sentenced to death, he has this moment that he's just, he's terrified. 
at first he wants to kind of like play, play the brave young man. Yes, I'll go to my death and I won't fear death. And then he starts thinking about it and he's like, ah, oh, but death is a fearful thing. And after I got done playing that scene, something changed inside me. So much so, <laughs> I'll tell you how much it changed inside me. I, I, I'm actually on a little bit of a mission um, to change the way that teachers teach Shakespeare. He's, I, he's just absolutely the greatest. He's so exciting. The language is pulsating. The energy is incredible. And yet our students walk away from Shakespeare and they are bored to death. My conviction is that they're bored to death because English teachers, and I was one of them, I'm as guilty as anybody, teach Shakespeare's plays as if they were novels. We ask our students to sit down at a desk at home or in class and read through Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet it could not be a more thrilling play, but if you got to sit there at a desk or at home and read it by yourself, like it's, it's really, really tough. Um, so I have kind of developed a way for classroom teachers to get students on their feet and to actually like read the text aloud and allow themselves to embody these words. If you want to know anything more about it, I'm totally self-plugging here. Tim teaches Shakespeare.com. That's my website. All sorts of resources, all sorts of free scenes. If you want to try this out with your students or with your kids, or you just want to try to read one of Shakespeare's most famous scenes yourself, I've got PDFs of 40 different Shakespeare scenes. These are like the greatest hit scenes, and it's all available on my website. The scenes are free. Tim teaches Shakespeare.com. Okay the end of my like commercial. I apologize for that. So Romeo and Juliet, of course, the play ends with Romeo and Juliet dying in each other's arms. And one of the forgotten and beautiful things about the play is that the two fathers get together having lost their children and they resolve this must end. This bloodshed between our families must end. Soon after that, Richard II, Shakespeare's play, Richard II, followed by A Midsummer Night's Dream, and an important moment in Shakespeare's life, 1596, Shakespeare applies for and receives a coat of arms. This is, would be a huge moment for him. This is the Elizabethan status symbol. You know, for us, it's driving Jaguar or maybe the clothes that we wear or that we live in a penthouse in Manhattan or something like that. In Shakespeare's day, you're walking through London. You want to have your coat of arms visible. It means Shakespeare has made it. He's a gentleman and he can write legally after his name, gentleman. So can his father. He kind of like applies on behalf of his father whose request had been denied years earlier and it's granted to Shakespeare and to his father. So a coat of arms is a really, it's the Elizabethan status symbol. And I say Elizabethan and it occurs to me, that's one of those words, Elizabethan, that people kind of bandy about a lot whenever they're talking about Shakespeare. And I'm not sure that everybody knows exactly what 
it means. So I'm just going to pause and tell you what it means. Elizabethan is basically the name of an era. It's the era that Shakespeare lived the first half of his life in. It's the era of Queen Elizabeth I. So as of the time that I'm recording this podcast, we just lost Elizabeth II, Queen over England. Um, Elizabeth II, by the way, was not named after Elizabeth I. But Elizabeth I was queen during Shakespeare's time. She attended Shakespeare's plays. I want to talk just a little bit about like what the main, I don't know, public concerns were during Elizabeth's time. There were plenty. I'm going to mention two, two massive conflicts. The first was with the Spanish Armada. So England has this kind of cute little fleet. And the fleet is really important to England, of course. It's just a huge island. You've got to have a really, you know, profoundly powerful sailing vessels. But at this point, England is dominated by Spain on the seas. So basically, Spain and England were... They were at war. It was just undeclared for, for many years. And the, the thing that terrified anybody living in England at the time would be that the Spanish Armada would sail for England. The Spanish Armada was just this tremendously intimidating naval force. And there's a story. So Thomas Hobbes, a famous philosopher who described human life as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. He's very, very kind of cynical and skeptical. Thomas Hobbes used to love to tell this story that he was born prematurely in 1588 because his mother heard the news that the Spanish Armada had sailed toward England. And she, she fell and he was like born prematurely kind of out of his mother's terror at the Spanish Armada. He would say that fear and I were born twins together. That's the first big conflict during Elizabethan England. It is this kind of undeclared war between Spain, particularly the Armada, and England. The second major conflict would have been much more kind of like on the streets at this time. And it was a religious one. So the kind of Protestant revolt against established Catholicism had started earlier in the 1500s with Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously posts his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg church. And from these theses, it's 95 statements, kind of complaints, um, people make copies of these theses and Europe catches fire. This is right at the same time that the printing press is beginning to really become kind of a mainstay of everyday life in urban areas. So people would make copies of Luther's 95 theses and they just raced across Europe. And soon Europe was engulfed in this massive debate. And it was a violent debate between Catholicism and Protestantism. And it was such a big deal that, and it was really hard to kind of figure out for 
nobility and for kings because they would have within their own country divides. And these divides, these are not small differences of opinions. These are absolute, this is not like, oh, Republican versus Democrat. No, Republicans and Democrats, as much as they fight today, have so much more in common. Catholics and Protestants, like it is a really, really radically different view of the world. And it is not just affecting everyday people in churches. It is affecting nobility. It is affecting monarchs. And England was deeply affected by this. They have kind of a succession of rulers, starting with Henry VIII, who kind of go back and forth between Catholicism, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Protestantism. Um, it all starts, of course, with uh, Henry VIII, who basically can't produce a male heir, and the Pope of Rome won't give him a divorce. So what does he do? He's like, well, I need to get a divorce. I know what I'll do. I'll start my own church. And from that, the Church of England is born. The Church of England is kind of this, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a hybrid between Catholicism and Protestantism. The Puritans at the time, they're just like, Henry has not gone far enough. You know, let's be done with him. Um, so in subsequent generations, subsequent rulers are flip-flopping between Catholicism and this kind of upstart Protestantism. Queen Elizabeth I walks a middle path. So one of her mottos is a kind of early version of, of don't ask, don't tell. Her motto was, I see and keep silent. So in religion, she was pretty tolerant and tried to avoid systematic persecution really of either side. Now, Shakespeare is born into this religious rift. And if you want to go down a rabbit hole, try to find out if Shakespeare was Protestant or Catholic. Oh my goodness. So many dissertations have been written on this subject. Was he Catholic? Was he Protestant? And people find evidence within his plays of either, of either position. I do want to say this. There can be no doubt that he knew his Bible really, really well. There are all sorts of biblical allusions. I mean, all throughout his plays, you know, as we grow kind of like biblically illiterate, sometimes it's harder for us to pick up on these biblical themes, but they're all over the place. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Bill Bryson again. I think he's really excellent on this. So this is Bill Bryson from his little Shakespeare biography, page 61 quote. It is impossible to say how religious Shakespeare was, or if he was at all. The evidence, predictably, is mixed. Samuel Schoenbaum, that's a Shakespeare biographer, Schoenbaum was struck by how often certain biblical allusions appeared in Shakespeare's work. The story of Cain, for instance, appears 25 times in 38 plays, quite a high proportion. Other interpreters say that Shakespeare was almost wholly uninterested in biblical themes and noted that nowhere in his work did the work, quote, Bible or Trinity or Holy Ghost appear, a conclusion endorsed in more recent times by the British historian Richard Jenkins. 
But the British authority Stanley Wells contends that Shakespeare's plays are riddled with biblical allusions. In short, and as always, a devoted reader can find support for nearly any position he or she wishes in Shakespeare. Or, as Shakespeare himself puts it in the much misquoted line, the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. So, like Shakespeare's use of history, it seems like his use of theology in some ways depends on his characters and the story he is telling. So, for example, in Hamlet, Hamlet has a speech early on, I think it's Act 1, Scene 2, um, where he talks about that God's canon refuses self-slaughter. Like suicide would be absolutely unacceptable to a Christian. And Hamlet seems to believe this. It's the reason that he doesn't take his life in Act 1, Scene 2. But then in other places, Shakespeare will talk about suicide and his characters will talk about it as like a really noble way to die, namely in his Roman plays. Because the Romans, of course, like they would say when you're backed into a corner, you have no way out. All the forces of injustice are against you. Best way to go is by bleeding out in your bathtub. That's a noble way to go. And Shakespeare will have his characters be like, yep, absolutely, that's the way to go. So for Shakespeare, it's it seems to me that he will take certain theological tenets and he will kind of allow his characters to believe or disbelieve them depending on their drives in the play. Okay, but even though Shakespeare's religious convictions are kind of opaque, is he, is he Catholic? Is he Protestant? Um, a, a lot of people will say because he doesn't really land hard in one place or another, he is, above all else, a humanist. And I think this is true, but I want to qualify what I mean by that word humanist. By humanist, I mean somebody that has a strong concern for human welfare, for human values, for the dignity of the human being. And I think there's no question that Shakespeare is a humanist in that regard. I don't think he's a humanist kind of in that, in that modern sense. Sometimes um, modern humanism modern humanists like to pit themselves against like any form of religion. They see themselves as non-religious people and they're, they're trying to live, you know, meaningful, ethical, fulfilling lives without any sort of religious background. So I think that deserves a little bit of exploration, but before we explore that, I do want to just make the case that Shakespeare is a humanist. And I think the best way to do this is to look at the play, The Merchant of Venice. So in The Merchant of Venice, the main character is Shylock. Shylock is a Jew and a moneylender, and he's an absolute minority in the Christian Venice of his time. So in the story, Merchant of Venice, Shylock makes a loan to a Christian named Antonio. Shylock hates Antonio, hates him. And as part of the loan, as part of the bargain, they make a deal. If Antonio forfeits, Shylock can collect from him a pound of flesh. I, this is like a little touch of genius by Shakespeare. It's so suggestively horrible, like 
a pound of flesh, like where on Antonio's body will Shylock take that pound of flesh? It's almost like more horrifying than, you know, if he said, I'm going to skin your leg or whatever it is. Okay, so Shylock is most definitely a villainous character, but he's also a victim. That's part of the reason that Shylock is such an intriguing character. He is both a villain and a victim. And right in the middle of Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare gives Shylock some of the most beautiful, powerful, poignant lines that have Shylock defending himself as a human being. Yes, he might be a Jew living in Christendom, but more than anything else, he is a human being. Let's listen to just one, a few lines from this speech. So Antonio's friend, Salarino, is urging Shylock not to take Antonio's flesh. I'm sure if you forfeit, you will not take his flesh. What's that good for? To bait fish withal. If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated my enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! Hath that a Jew eyes? Hath that a Jew hands? Organs? Dimensions? Senses? Affections? Passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. In that speech, we hear Shakespeare, the humanist at his very best. Humanity trumps religious affiliation. But at the conclusion of that same play, Shakespeare seems to esteem that most Christian virtue, which is mercy. So Portia, another major character in Merchant of Venice, through a series of events, prosecutes Shylock. And Shylock has won over Antonio. He now can take, according to their bond, according to their contract, a pound of flesh from Antonio. And Portia comes in, and she basically kind of like gets Antonio off on a technicality, but not before she begs Shylock to have mercy. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. 
But mercy is above this sceptred sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. So I want to be careful about calling Shakespeare a humanist. In one sense, yes, very much he is. He is absolutely concerned with the dignity of the human being. And there are moments and gestures where it seems like he is humanity first and religious second. I think that case can can be made. But I also want to be careful that he is very different from a modern humanist and a modern humanist oftentimes would pit himself, herself, against kind of any and all forms of religion. Modern humanism tends to see themselves as non-religious people who, who want to live fulfilling and meaningful and ethical lives independent and apart from religion. It's hard to think of Shakespeare in that way because he has inherited so much medieval Christendom that it's really hard to call him as kind of like a progenitor um, to modern humanism. One of Shakespeare's biggest inheritances comes straight from the kind of religious scientific vision of the medieval world. And that is this, that the cosmos and everything in it is striving for harmony. It's an idea that was taught by Pythagoras as early as the 6th century BC, and it has been, up until relatively recently, kind of a a central premise of Western civilization, that all of the universe and even the human soul and human interactions in society are are all striving toward harmony. And... When the human soul is in disharmony, it has an effect that reverberates out into the natural world. So I I just want to talk a little bit more about this vision of the world because number one, I think it's really beautiful. I'm, I'm sad along with others that we are kind of vision of the cosmos is, um, it's pretty austere. I think when we think of the cosmos, we get most of our description from modern science, which has given us an incredible amount. I mean, my, my, my dad's cancer was treated so well by modern science, so I'm not banging on modern science. But I think as a cosmology, I think it can leave a lot to be desired. And I think this kind of medieval vision of, of harmony of the spheres and the stars singing to each other because of that harmony, that that Pythagorean vision of kind of an interworking and interlocking and melodious vision of the entirety of creation working together. It's, it's just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. And it's part of Shakespeare's inheritance. 
let me try to paint a little bit of a picture of this from um, one of Shakespeare's plays. So this also comes from Merchant of Venice. This is, a, I mean, you can see it's a theme in Merchant of Venice. And at the very end of the play, there are a couple of characters that are speaking. Lorenzo is speaking to Jessica. And Lorenzo describes a herd of wild colts. And he describes what would happen if these colts running roughshod over the plain heard a trumpet sound or any air of music. He said, what would happen? They would stand and listen because there's something about the melody. There's something about the music that actually affects their soul. So let's listen to Lorenzo talk about this. For two but note, a wild and wanton herd or race of youthful and unhandled colts, fetching mad bounds, bellowing and neighing loud, which is the hot condition of their blood. If they but hear perchance a trumpet sound or any air of music touch their ears, you shall perceive them make a mutual stand, their savage eyes turned to a modest gaze by the sweet power of music. A bit later, Lorenzo shows how the opposite can happen also. If music has the power to restore harmony, then any person who lacks harmony of soul, who has no music in himself, is in danger of committing the worst crimes, treason, stratagems, and sports. Let's listen to Lorenzo again. A man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music. So, a man has no music, who has no music in himself is in danger of treason, stratagems, and spoils. And we see this show up in a later tragedy, Macbeth. When Macbeth is considering and planning the murder of the good King Duncan, nature begins to revolt. There, there are these lines, these ominous lines, now or the one-half world, nature seems dead. Macbeth says this on his way to Duncan's bedchamber with daggers in Macbeth's hands. Now thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk for fear, thy very stones prate of my whereabout. While doing the deed, while on the way to the deed, Macbeth is like, nature's going to betray me. It's going to fall into chaos because of this disharmonious act that I'm about to commit. So in this kind of backdrop of Shakespeare's world, there's this view that nature falls into chaos when the human world is in moral disorder, when the human soul is in a state of disorder. So you wonder if some of these things are... Um, sense of a sense of disorder of disharmony is starting to kind of 
show up for Shakespeare because he suffers something terrible around this time. His son, Hamnet, dies at age 11. This would have been 1596. He would have been, Hamnet was the sole male heir of the Shakespearean line. There were no other boys in the family. Um, We don't know what sort of effect it had on Shakespeare. Of course, we can guess. Any parent who has lost a child or been under threat of losing a child knows how terrifying that is and the depression that can follow such an event. And so I just kind of, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of speculate that Shakespeare, after losing his 11 year old boy, and he would have been, Shakespeare would have been away from home. He would have been in London when it happened, probably the kind of darkness that might have afflicted him at this time. But at the time, he's still writing plays. The plays that he's working with at this time are Henry IV, Part One and Part Two. Um, also, Merchant of Venice, King John. I want to make a plug for Henry IV, Part One. If you're a teacher and you're wondering which play to start with, if you're you know you're going to try some Shakespeare on your students, Henry IV, Part One is a great place to start. I think the other one would be Julius Caesar for me. Julius Caesar, the language of that play is the simplest. I think that probably the language that's most complex in the canon is a play called Coriolanus. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But I think Julius Caesar's language is most plain spoken. I mean, still ornate and gorgeous and sumptuous. But for Shakespeare, it's relatively tame. He's kind of writing in a Roman mode. Um, Simple, pared down. But I would make the case for Henry the Fourth, not just because not because the language is necessarily simpler, but because it's a very relatable play for high school students. It's the story of a wayward son whose father, the king, keeps asking him to kind of shape up. You got to get ready to be the you know to take the throne, and Hal eventually will take the throne, and he will eventually become a great king of England, Henry V. But the big obstacle in this play is a character. It's, it's this kind of um, larger-than-life temptation character who is always pulling Prince Hal away from the throne and into the tavern. Peace, good pint pot! Sir John Falstaff. Peace, good tickle brain. There is a thing, Harry, which thou's often heard of, and it is known to many in our land by the name of pitch. This pitch, as ancient writers do report, doth defile. So doth the company thou keepest. Falstaff was an absolutely larger-than-life character, one of the absolute favorites of the Elizabethan stage. He was so popular, in fact, that we have two independent historical sources that confirm that Shakespeare revived Falstaff after he kind of like brushed him aside at the end of Henry IV, Part Two. He revives Falstaff 
at Queen Elizabeth's insistence. Apparently, she loved Falstaff, and she asked Shakespeare to revive him. He did revive him and plugged him into a later play in 1600, The Merry Wives of Windsor. In that play, Falstaff is kind of dropped into a love triangle. So if you know anything about Falstaff, this huge, you know, beer-drinking, carousing, witty, half-soldier if you can imagine him in a love triangle, that's the Merry Wives of Windsor. So Falstaff is kind of the um, other side of the protagonist. There are these two protagonists in Henry IV parts one and two when Prince Hal assumes the throne at the end of Henry IV part two, he will turn his back on Falstaff in a really beautiful and and sad scene, and it'll leave you wondering, do we, did he treat Falstaff poorly? That's a question to ask yourself um, at the end of Henry IV, part two. Let's talk about Shakespeare's actors. So Shakespeare was part of an acting troupe, and he was an actor himself. He probably played the ghost in Hamlet, Hamlet's father. He probably played the ghost, and there are other characters that he played in his own plays that we have kind of historical documentation for. But he was not the star of his own plays. The star of his own plays was an actor named Richard Burbage. Richard Burbage is, was probably like the greatest actor of his age, and he played the lead role in all of Shakespeare's greatest plays. That meant Hamlet, Othello, Richard III, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, King Lear. He was the lead in all of those. And what's interesting about Richard Burbage is he was also a really remarkable businessman. So he was the co-owner, along with his brother, of the theater, the first permanent theater ever built in England. It was located just outside the city of London. And... We know a little bit about the globe because, well, we kind of got lucky and a man visiting London made a sketch. So I'm going to take this from Bryson, page 66. Quote, in 1596, while attending a performance at the New Swan Theater in London, a Dutch tourist did a very useful thing that no one, it seems, had ever done before. He made a sketch depicting the swan's interior. Without it, we would know essentially nothing about the working layout of theaters of the time. Its uniqueness explains the similarity of design of the new replica globe. So, in short... This Dutch tourist is attending a play at the Swan Theater. He sketches it, and the whole sketch kind of bears a resemblance to the Globe Theater that is now on London Bankside Theater. So this is kind of what we think our best guess is about what theaters looked like on the inside during Shakespeare's day. Richard Burbage and his brother are co-owners of one of these theaters just called The Theater. 
built just outside of London. And there's a fascinating, fascinating story that happens um, when Burbage and his brother want to renew the lease on the land that their theater is located on. The trouble is the owner of the land just doesn't want to renew the lease and he's kind of got them pinned. He's got them in a real bind because, well, the theater's built on his land. They have to re-up with him, right? So Burbage, maybe Shakespeare, maybe like the whole Shakespearean troupe of actors, they formulate a plan and they are just not going to let this landowner keep them in this bind. So here is a bit from Stephen Greenblatt's The Will in the World about what happens late one night when Shakespeare's actors, including Richard Burbage and his brothers decide, okay, you won't, you're going to kind of um, gouge the rent. That's fine. We're just going to take our theater. So in the middle of the night, this is what happened. Quote from uh, Stephen Greenblatt. Quote, as a sharer in his company, Shakespeare was probably directly involved in all aspects of his daily affairs, including the increasingly acrimonious conflict with Giles Allen, the owner of the land on which the theater, where the Lord's Chamberlain's, where the Lord Chamberlain's men chiefly performed, had been built. Burbage's sons, who had taken over a protect, protracted negotiation upon the death of their father, could not accept the raise in rents. Finally, the talks broke off and the theater was closed. This would eventually lead to the selling off of costumes and disbanding the acting troupe altogether if they couldn't resolve the problem. But they did resolve the problem. They resolved it by basically in the middle of the night dismantling the... I'm no longer reading from... Greenblatt from by they stole in in the middle of the night, took the theater apart beam by beam, post by post, and they floated it down the Thames River. Once they got down the Thames River, they reassembled it on the south side and renamed the new playhouse the Globe. An, inc- an incredible story. How in the world did they do this? But these, these were actors that would just not take no for an answer. So that's how they solved the problem. Much Ado About Nothing is written around this time, 1598, 1599, a famous battle of wits between Benedict and Beatrice. And it starts in act one, scene one this way. I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear lady Disdain? Are you yet living? (laughs) (laughs) Is it possible Disdain should die while she hath such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to disdain if you come in her presence. Well, then is courtesy a turncoat, but it is certain. I am loved of all ladies, only you excepted, and I would have could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. This brings us to 1599. 1599 is a 
really turbulent year for Elizabethan England. Elizabeth sends off an army to crush an Irish rebellion. They're still kind of under threat from the Spanish Armada. The England makes a big bet on the East India Company. And everybody in England is waiting. What is going to happen to our childless queen? Who is going to succeed the throne? And this would be a source of tremendous worry. If you don't have a natural heir, then you might be headed towards some sort of a coup. It's also important, 1599 is also important because this is the year that begins Shakespeare's greatest and most productive period. He goes through about nine years from 99 to 1608 in which he writes the following plays. Like, it's incredible. Henry V, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Othello, Twelfth Night, King Lear, Macbeth, Coriolanus, eight masterpieces. And he wrote eight or nine other plays during this nine-year period. The first kind of like of this period that's most remarkable for us is known by three words. Fake friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. That was Mark Antony speaking to the citizens of Rome, reminding them of what a great leader Caesar was. Uh, that just that bit of rhetoric, the whole speech is in, in one of the masterpieces of rhetoric because Mark Antony is not allowed to say that he disagrees with Brutus and Cassius, the assassins who just murdered uh, Caesar. He's not allowed to speak any ill of them. So he repeats this phrase and Brutus is an honorable man and he repeats it over and over as he builds this case for what a great leader Caesar was, that Caesar left in his will all sorts of money to the Roman people. He left them there, his gardens, and all the while Mark Antony is planting the seeds. And Brutus is an honorable man. And of course, it begs the question through ironic speech, was he really an honorable man? He just killed this man who is like bequeathed you his gardens and, you know, all sorts of money. So Julius Caesar, followed by As You Like at the Comedy, Twelfth Night, and of course, we have now arrived at the masterpiece, the greatest play by the greatest playwright. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you. This brave or hanging firmament. This majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. Piece of work is a man 
How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. That was, of course, Hamlet, and he was there speaking to his two friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are going to rat him out to the king. And I would love to tell you all about that, but alas, we are out of time on this episode of The Plays the Thing. So before we discuss Shakespeare's most memorable, mysterious, and debated play, we have unfortunately got to take a pause Please join us for part two of this life of Shakespeare. And meanwhile, for those of you who want to learn a little bit more about classical education, the sort of education that Shakespeare seems to have had, I encourage you to visit the host of this podcast, circeinstitute.org. That's C-I-R-C-E institute.org. Any of you who are interested in learning a new way to teach Shakespeare's plays, please, I would love it. Visit my website, timteachesshakespeare.com. That's timteachesshakespeare.com. And if you want to know what it looks like when a handful of first-time students who know very, very little about Shakespeare and who know very, very little about acting, if you want to see them try to act Shakespeare and become really successful at it. I think you might like a class that I just did for classicalu.com. That's classical u, the letter u, not the word, .com. And there you'll find my class performing Shakespeare in your classroom. Performing Shakespeare in your classroom. So, next week, part 2 of this life of Shakespeare. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been so struck to the soul that suddenly they have proclaimed their malfactions. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before my uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he but blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape yeah and perhaps out of my melancholy and my weakness as he is very potent with such spirits abuses me to damn me I'll have grounds more relative than this The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch 
the conscience of the king. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.